Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Good morning. What do you say? What's the proper greeting for a hot, sultry, humid summer morning? Good. Stay cool morning. Stay cool morning. I told him earlier I turned this, I cranked the AC down to 69 in here. So if you're uncomfortable, I'm sorry. I'm tired of sweating. But uh, the, you know, air conditioning takes the humidity out of the air. So therefore, it will be less humid in here. I hope. But thank you for being here. This is, uh, we are going to begin, oh, there's my brown marker. I, I had to write this in blue because I love it. Thank you. Um, we're ready to start chapter 8, but we are actually picking up with the very last verse of chapter 7. Before we get into that section, I want to talk with you. We brought this up just a little bit last week. Let's talk a little bit about how this got, why there's a little controversy over this story in the Bible. And let's talk about how it got there. Most of your Bibles, depending on what version you're reading, most of them will have this section from chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11, in brackets. Okay? Brackets like this. And that means that whenever, in all of your Bible, you'll actually find, there are many parts of your Bibles that you might see those brackets. And what that says is, this was not in, that they can see, scholars can see, in the oldest of manuscript evidence. The oldest of manuscript evidence. So before we jump right into that, let's just talk a little bit about how we got the Bible and get ourselves familiar with some of these and, and how we put our, uh, under, our understanding and our trust in God's word. There are two words that you hear a lot when you're talking about Biblical interpretation. And uh, you'll hear in different translations. You'll hear the word manuscript evidence. And you'll hear the word autographs. Okay? Does anybody know what an autograph is? Well, an autograph is your signature of a particular person. We think of it as our signature, don't we? Uh -huh. But... <laughs> yeah. So what it is in... In biblical interpretation and translation, the, the word autograph means the original, original. No, okay. Okay, if it's autographed by someone, it's their original signature. Okay, so in the biblical terms, it's their original writing. Okay, the, the actual scroll that John wrote on. Guess what? We don't have the autographs. We do, did you know that? We don't have the autographs. 2,000 years ago they were written. We don't have them. So what do we have? Manuscripts. We have manuscripts. Now the manuscripts are what? Copies. Copies. There was no way to... There, there would be no way to spread the word of God, the, the holy scriptures, without manuscripts being written. So, and this is, and this is why some people worry... Uh, Scholars, scholars argue, not worry, uh, over, well, who wrote this? Was this manuscript written really by John, or was this written by somebody else? Um, different parts. Understand that a lot of 
a lot of apostles and biblical writers could have well used other scribes to write for them. There are some people that think uh, Paul, the apostle, had bad eyesight and, and had uh, a scribe write for him. Peter, you look at First and Second Peter, they sound totally different. The Greek that's used sound totally different. It's absolutely no problem for me and for most scholars that there could be a difference in the scribe that wrote them. What we want to understand is what's the, who's guiding the scribe. It's God can still be behind the story that he gave to Peter and the experiences that he gave to Peter or John or James or whoever and be with the, the scribe to guide them. But this raises the question that we have. We have lots of manuscript evidence for many, many parts of, of the Bible, especially the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John alone is prolific in the manuscript evidence that we have. And that manuscript evidence, you know, it's not, it's not a, it's never all, rarely, I won't say never, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a scholar at any of this, okay? I'm just sharing with you things I've learned. But it's never usually the whole unit. I mean, it's pieced together and things got pieced together through ages, okay? And scholars would fit the story together. So what, what we have that most of our Bibles are translated into English. Remember, we're reading a translation. Most of them are translated into English from a manuscript or manuscript evidence that is called the Masoretic Text. I put that on the, on the board for you. Masoretic Text. Well, what is a Masoretic Text? Well, what's a Masorete? It comes from the word Masorete. Okay? The Masoretes were, or the Masorites, however you want to say it, the Masoretes were Jewish scholars. Okay? Jewish scholars that lived between, they were kind of a... a, a an, an order or, a, you know, you, they weren't, they're Jews, so they weren't uh, monks, but they were, you know, the kind of an order of, of Jewish scholars, their life's work was to translate the Holy Scripture, okay? So they translated, they lived between the 7th and 10th centuries, okay? The Masoretes existed somewhere in that area. And they wrote most of the ancient manuscript evidence that we have is about the ninth century, okay? So that's what, the 800s, okay? So that the New Testament that you and I read uh, is based on, depending on what version we're reading, maybe the ninth, ninth century uh, translations of these Masoretes, okay? Um, the Mass, now that's, we're talking New Testament stuff here too, okay? These are, even though they're Jews, <laughs> they were translating these holy scriptures. Now, they did the whole, the whole Bible. Now, you'll notice I put the King James Version here. The King James Version was the very first uh, translation of the Bible in, that was widely accepted in English. It wasn't the first. You know, uh, Tyndale and Wycliffe both worked on English translations and lost their life for it in the 1200s and 1300s. But um, because the official scripture of the Western Christian Church does anybody know what it is all, what it always was in history? In Greek. Nope. Latin. Latin. It was called the yeah. Latin Vulgate. Yeah. The Latin Vulgate. So if you ever see that term, I didn't put that up here, but I will. The Vulgate. 
And does anybody know who translated that Bible, the Latin Vulgate? It was translated in the late 300s or the 4th century. Does anybody know who was responsible for translating that? His name was Jerome. St. Jerome. And if you've been to Bethlehem, and if you've been to the Church of the Nativity and all the courtyards around, there's actually a, a, you can't go in it now, but there's a cell down underground in the stairways. We looked down the stairway where Jerome spent his years there in Bethlehem writing, translating from Hebrew and Greek, trying the, the best records that he had to translate the Bible into Latin. Yes? Yeah, when you said it got translated to English, was it originally, was it Hebrew? Yes, Hebrew and Greek, just depending on the parts. There's three languages in the original scriptures, in the autographs, if you will, which we don't have, and that would be Arabic. That would be Hebrew, Aramaic, a few parts of Aramaic, and by the time you get to the New Testament, all Greek. Okay. Now, the reason I said you guessed Greek a minute ago, and you would have been right, if we were talking about the oldest scriptures ever put together and translated. I talked about that a few weeks ago. The Septuagint is the Greek Bible, and it, it dates back to 200, 250 years before Christ. But as far as the actual functioning Western Christian church, which became known as the Roman Catholic Church, in the 4th century, the Latin Vulgate became the official scriptures to be used because they wanted the scripture in Latin. It was in Greek. Okay, the, remember the churches in Antioch and Alexandria and Jerusalem and everywhere? All their scriptures were in Greek. In fact, there are some, we know now, that there are churches in the Eastern world that existed uh, quite ancient. They're called the, the historic uh, churches of Assyria. And, and uh, that's north up in what's today Syria. But then, you know, it was like the ancestors of the Babylonians. Um, that whole area of Turkey and Syria... There's churches up there that are still using scriptures translated in Aramaic. That's the native tongue of the native tongue of the Assyrian people up in that area was Aramaic. Okay, I actually have a Bible in my office that is the official Bible of what's called the Church of the East. It's not the Eastern Orthodox Communion of Churches. It's not the Roman Catholic. It's officially called the Church of the East. And it's a fascinating Bible. It's English, of course. I can't read Aramaic. But it's translated. It was translated in the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century, by a man, a single man named George Lamsa, who was himself a Syrian and knew the language. And he translated the scriptures into English that the ancient church of the East has always used. And they're still over there in the mountains of Syria and places like that using those scriptures. So there's some really ancient stuff out there. But what I want us to hear today is that in your Bibles, as we study this section of Scripture, there's a set of brackets. Because in the, uh, in the King James Bible, though, there's no brackets. So if anyone here has a King James Bible, I think, Marlene, do you have one? Yeah. Do you see brackets around those? No. So the King James Bible is saying, we believe these are just part of the original Scripture. Because in 1611, they didn't know what they didn't know. Okay, It wasn't until the 20th century, in about the 1940s and 50s, I can't remember what year, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Anybody remember the Dead Sea Scrolls? You hear about them, read about them, know what they are? They're amazing manuscripts that were discovered in K-1, 
in a cave, if you go to the Qumran caves, if you're ever in the Holy Land, this is where the group called the Essenes, this were Jews, kind of like the Masoretes are, you know, seven centuries later, the, the Essenes were scholars and they lived in communities by themselves and their whole lives were dedicated to, to writing and copying, translating scripture, okay? And they, the belief is that they stuffed them in these jars, these big uh, pottery jars, to preserve them when everything fell apart in uh, the Holy Land when the Roman Empire began to overrun Jerusalem in 70 AD and then later there was the, uh, the, uh, the story of what happened to that last stand at Masada. Uh, that's in near that area that they, they fled to this area and put them in the caves. Well, they were discovered by in the, 19, uh, the 20th century and reading those and comparing them to the best manuscript evidence that the King James Bible had, the King James Bible did its best it could with what it had in 1611. But what we learned was by looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls with, that had, there's whole books written about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and if you really like to learn as much as you can about scripture, you should read those books, because it shows you where there were differences. No change in doctrine. Here's what's amazing. Of all the evidence that we've been able to discover over 2,000 years to put God's word together, it's never changed the faith of Christianity. There's no big new discovery that's, oh, we were wrong about that doctrine. Okay, But what has changed is little sections. Maybe this section was left out or that section was a little different. Or uh, So it gives us a fuller picture. Now, this story is a great example of that. Was this in what John really intended to write, or was it not? We can't answer that. And I'm going to tell you this morning, I don't believe we need to answer that. I think we can trust that whether it was John that wrote this, and maybe on the fragments that ended up getting pieced together later, some of them, just because it, most of the manuscripts, and you'll look in your little caveats there in the brackets, it says most ancient Manuscripts do not include this, but that's not all. Mine says most reliable. Most reliable. So there were other. The earliest manuscripts. There, there are some that had them. The question is who's reliable and who isn't. So is it if you have lots that don't have it and some that do have it, scholars are going to think that the lots that don't have it would be the most reliable, because there's more evidence of it. Okay, so. But does it matter whether John wrote this or not? What would be the reasons for some, maybe somebody? In the earliest churches in the first few centuries, believe it or not, and we could read them, we won't have time to today, but there are, in my ancient commentary on scripture, there's writings by St. Augustine and some of the others that, that what they do, they actually speculate on why it was left out. They said maybe the church authorities of the day thought that this passage of scripture is going to show Jesus to be too soft on sin. And too soft on the sin of adultery, especially. And wives are going to think they can just get away with this. <laughs> of course, that's all conjecture, isn't it? It's what Augustine wrote in the 4th century. But it's all conjecture. We don't know. But what we can know is that the story we're about to study today is, is accurate to the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. It's accurate to the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. It's consistent with the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I think we should accept it as inspired. Now, this does raise a question. I just want to touch on this this morning. 
this does raise a question as what is what does it mean? What, are, what do we mean when we say the scriptures are inspired? Because believe it or not, right in this very room, there may be a vast difference of apparent opinions on what that really means. Well, mostly it's, I've been taught since an early uh, child that, that the scriptures came from men that the Holy Spirit gave them the, the words. And, and we have to be really careful when we talk about it because there are some who would say that the Bible is, the, the, let's just say the scriptures, I'm not going to use the word the Bible, but the scriptures are inerrant in every detail. I believe that. Okay, I do not. I don't. I, don't I do not. I've, I've had people that's told me that before too and I've had someone do agree with me. And let me tell you why I don't though. Okay. And that's okay if you do. If you believe that, that's fine. I'm not going to talk you out of it. But I'm going to tell you that it's not consistent to believe that with all of the evidence. Because there are things in Scripture that are not accurate. Okay? That are not accurate. And if you hold to this, well, it's an error in every detail. You've got a problem with how to explain those inaccuracies. Now, those inaccuracies, let me be clear, they have nothing whatsoever to do with faith, soteriology, which is the story of salvation, nothing whatsoever to do with anything that would drive any Christian doctrine. They're strictly historical, geographical, minor mistakes. Well, you say, well, isn't God big enough to have given us this book without any mistakes? Still got human factor involved. That's right. That's why we cannot, I believe, we cannot hold to a scriptural inerrancy in every flat detail. You can't do it. Because those that do have gotten them to back themselves in a corner into a pickle. And they are also the ones that tend to say, King James only. It's the only one we can trust. It's the only one we can trust. Because you have to be careful what you say about scripture. Now, what, so what can we say? I see your hand. to the life in Christ, the life of God that he has called us all to live, which I, I think is what you mean. Um, scripture is holy. It is authoritative. It is inspired. But it doesn't mean that it has to be uh, inerrant in every detail. Okay, What we would say, here's what we would say, the Church of the Nazarene's official position, you can read it in the manual if you want to. We would say that it is inspired and inerrant in its plenary translation. What's a, a plenary? That, those are the autographs. The, in its original language, which we don't have. We always must stand believing that we have translations is what we're reading from, okay? 
But we know that God was able to inspire not only the translators, not only the, uh, the writers, but the translators also. And that he has preserved his word faithful over 2,000 years such that nobody has really ever been able to prove the Bible wrong. Right. Find those little inaccuracies. Go look for them. You can buy whole books that will tell you what they are. And they do not prove anything wrong in the Christian faith. But the things that count. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's, that's, and, and why is that's it? That's where I come on. Yeah, that's right. Those things are, are, are inspired. And here's what I want you to hear. That the reason this is important is because people like the Muslim, our Muslim friends, they, they believe in a, in a scripture, the Quran. They believe in a scripture that they believe was dropped out of heaven by God, word for word, through this angel. Okay? This word, we don't believe that. Ours is a book, it's a library of books written over 1,500 years of stories collected in, by inspired men and I was going to say men and women. We maybe some women that told some stories in there, um, and and put this all together. That takes a greater miracle to me yeah. than just to drop an instruction book out of the sky and say, "Here, follow this." You know, Rhonda, you had your hand up. I was just wondering. So, how do you know what's inaccurate, um, and does it really matter? Yeah, because it's the Bible and. How do you decipher, you know? Right. Well, this is why you can look at all the different translations that there are. And there are a lot of them, okay? And you can even get the Latin Vulgate out and read it translated into English. And you're not going to find any difference measurable in the Christian faith. Isn't not going to find any difference. Because of those little things, you just they're just small. Isn't it all important? It's not how it's put there's different languages, it would be what it means? Absolutely. And that's what we're going for. What does the scripture mean? And what did it mean when it was first written? What did those first hearers hear? What were they supposed to hear? And that's why I always tell you the first rule of all Bible study. The Bible, the scriptures that we study cannot mean something different to you and I in 2000 and Whatever year this is. 2018. Wow, I'm losing track of it. 2019. When you've said that phrase through different decades, it gets hard to remember what year you're in. It cannot mean something different to you and I as we study it in 2018 than it did in the year 118 or 218 or 518. It cannot. You see? Because it's God's words and it's truth. And human beings don't change. Sin doesn't change. The world really doesn't change. We're all sinners. We all need the message that's in this. Amen. The culture may change. You know, do women have to wear their hair a certain way or sit on a certain side of the church? Those were cultural things that Paul wrote about. And, you know, that can change. But the beliefs of the Christian faith that lead us to salvation, those do not change. The basic message of the Bible is just as true today as it was. Absolutely, absolutely. So I put on the board for you the, the NIV and the ESV, just to give you two. The NIV was one of the first to come along and put this in brackets, okay, this section that was written in 1978, translated, I'm sorry, in 1978. The NIV was, they, they decided to put this into brackets, this set of scriptures we're going to study this morning. And then uh, the ESV did the same thing in 2001. Those are two very big, well-translated, I mean, well-circulated uh, scriptures that are used today. 
And they did that based on what? ESV stands for English Standard Version. Okay. Okay, English Standard Version. The NIV is its own... Uh, is its own... Uh, New International. I want to say animal. <laughs> it's its own little animal out there, okay? It, it doesn't stand in a long line of other translations. It, it, it was, means more to me because there's a Nazarene was on the book, that group that, that translated it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it, to, in fairness to all of these translations, they're all put together by uh, ecumenical committees. There are Catholics, there are Orthodox, and there are Protestants on all of these committees oh, yeah. that have done all these Bibles. Um, the ESV is a long, it stands in the tradition of the RSV and the NRSV. The NRSV and then the RSV was before it, which stands in the tradition of the old, uh, really a translation of the, uh, from England, of the KJV, from its original, going all the way back to that in England. What is the RSV? Revised Standard Version. came out in the 1950s. That's the text that I use when I read in this Bible study, the RSV. And I use it simply because it's a little archaic, not nearly like the, the language of the, of the uh, uh, King James. But I, I think it's been very faithful to being a literal translation of the Bible as best we can do it. The, the ESV is a literal like that. The NIV is not a literal. It's trying to be dynamic. It's rephrasing things. To, to try and make sense in modern English. Right. That's what their whole purpose was. Nothing wrong with that. But for deep study, sometimes you've got to get back to what happens when you do that is sometimes they can miss a Greek word because of their trying to make something mean it something dynamically. It can change me. Again, not in anything related to salvation. Okay? Is so we the have. The RSV, uh, uh, this, well, this particular one I'm looking at right here has a footnote that says these verses rather than the brackets. My new RSV doesn't have brackets either. And your new RSV does. Does it give you a footnote to describe it? I bet it, bet it gives you a footnote. Um, there's a footnote, okay. So really all the Bibles of the 20th century and beyond are beginning to always either put brackets or footnotes around this. So now you have, you've been given a little extra insight into how Bible translation works and where these original autographs, uh, where are they? We don't know. I mean, can you imagine what it would have been worth, Debbie, if I could? Can you imagine if this paper right here was written by John? Can you imagine? It's so precious. The first thing somebody wanted to do was, was copy it as, as best they could, word for word one of his disciples, okay, and say, we can't lose this. And then, you know, okay, but you know the people over in, you know, at Ephesus, they need to read this too. We'll make another copy. We'll send it to them. And it just began to get copied and copied and copied and copied. And what we know is that from the thousands, of, tens of thousands of copies that we have of the Gospel of John, especially, we have more copies of it than almost any other book, I think, of those tens of thousands of copies... They're all so similar. There are only little variations that really have no problem in the meaning. And that's what we're talking. So well, that's what we mean by manuscript evidence. It's so strong. We don't have to doubt. We do not have to doubt that the Christian faith is true and solid and stands on solid ground. 2,000 years of solid ground. Never is it ever and it's just proved to be wrong. It's the, the Bible is the greatest selling book of all time. Nothing will ever come close. Okay? Nothing will ever come close. We went to a seminar, and I can't remember the gentleman's name, years ago, 
Uh -huh. I think he was in apologetics. Yeah. Uh, well-known guy. What was it? Went to St. Okay. Joe. And he said he made. He was comparing the Bible. Uh huh. And the number of original manuscripts. I think he used manuscripts. manuscripts. Words probably. Yeah. Compared to other original manuscripts. Yeah. Of other. Of other writings. History books and things. Whatever. Yeah, right. And it was, I mean, enormous difference. I, I can't even remember what he's, what he he's right. What he was comparing to, but we have thousands, thousands of that's right original manuscripts. Uh, as original, I didn't know old exactly yeah. the difference between right. manuscript he, and he meant these, yeah. But but he was just saying that, uh, and he's correct. He was one who went to prove the Bible wrong. Mm -hmm. Oh, may have been. Was it Lee Strobel? No. 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 Okay. It wasn't him, but it was, if we, oh. if we think of the name, you know him. There are, there are people that have tried to do that, mm -hmm. and right. their scholarly efforts have only led them to the truth. Right. The right. truth and the truth of God. Nobody can well, prove it wrong. One just recently, that oh, he was a, a college, he had a doctorate degree, and he was going to go prove the Bible wrong, and went back to Israel and to Greece, mm -hmm. all where, all the biblical lands, and yeah. ended up being converted Right. Yeah. Through what he found. Right. Right. Well, it is. It is true. The history books that you all—I don't care how old you are in this room—the history books that you used when you were in school, you were taught about the Roman Empire, and you were taught about you know the Greek Empire, and you were taught even American history. All of those those Roman Empire stories, the things that you learned about world history, there are maybe—and I'm not going to be exact on this—but there are maybe twelve copies of. Manuscripts, not autographs, in antiquities that, that that have to base the whole world history on. Twelve. You know how many copies there are of the? Do you know how many copies of manuscript evidence we have of the Gospel of John? Over thirty thousand. Over thirty. That's how well the Gospel of John was circulated. But, but yet we believe our history books, but we won't believe the Bible. I mean, what what's up with that? Yeah. What are the ones that they? Um, what do you call the ones like in the? Catholic Church, a lot when it burned down, and a lot of the scrolls got, came up missing. Life. I don't know. Not sure what you're referring to. Um, but the, these uh, these old manuscripts that we're talking about, the the, the oldest of the old, <laughs> they are in museums. Some are in the Vatican. Okay, some are in uh, British Museum, and there are even some in Israel. Um, of the Bible, actual, yeah. So it's, it's amazing. It's, so now you have a little background on why this is a, in brackets, and why this, let's read the story, okay? The story turns here. Verse 53 says, they went each to his own house. Okay. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So we see all of the people that, that have been, uh, who's been? He's been having a discussion, right, about unbelief. Uh, the Pharisees have been talking with, uh, you know, the, the remember the story. The, the soldiers, the officers, I guess you would call them, went back to the Pharisees. They would, didn't arrest Jesus, and they're even thinking they might believe in him because. And then the Pharisees are even madder, and then Nicodemus pops off and says, "Well, hey, do we convict a guy without at least letting him tell his story?" And they're going, "Are you from Nazareth too? Are you one of these?" You know. So there's this there's this tension building between the people, even some of the officers of the court, and the Pharisees. The hard-hearted versus the soft-hearted. 
Everybody goes to their own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. One of Jesus, when he was in Jerusalem, one of Jesus' favorite places to go. That's where the Garden of Gethsemane was. That's where he spent a lot of time alone in prayer with his father. Now, verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All of the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, uh, excuse me, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such. What do you say about her? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the eldest, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus looked up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and do not sin again. Stop there. This is a powerful story. I really believe this is in the Bible, even if it was later added by someone other than John, because God knew we need this scripture. We need this for for some reasons we're about to talk about. But I want to point out a few things first. In verse 3, You notice that it says the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees. Who are the scribes? I think we've got a pretty good idea who the teachers. Pretty good idea who the Pharisees are, but do we know who the scribes are? Well, that would be actually underlings, so to speak, to the to the Pharisees. Yeah, they they were the ones that actually wrote the laws out. The Pharisees, you know, whatever the Pharisees told them to write, more or less. You have a question. Yes, in, in that sure. verse that says uh, verse 11. Verse 11, okay. Yeah. No, but uh, she said, then didn't do I condemn you. Just declare, go now and live your life of sin. Yeah. And mine says, she said, no, one more. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Right. So you're going to get different different translations trying to say the same thing. What do you get from that? Mine said... Uh, and do not sin again. Go and do not sin again. But, but what are you thinking? What, what did that grab you? What did that say to you? Mine says, leave your life of sin. Yeah. What are you feeling? I, I'm, I'm interested to know what your thoughts are. Change. Don't do it again. Don't do it again. He it's, he, first of all, he forgives her. That's right. Um, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to that because there's some things I want to point out first. But this is, this is one of the most powerful things in the story. Mm-hmm. Verse 11 is one of the most powerful things in the story, but let me come back to that thought. Um, first, look in, in verse 3, the scribes. This is the only place in the whole Gospel of John where John, where the, the scribes are mentioned. So it's unusual. That's a clue to scholars. Hmm, why did he throw in the scribes? Maybe somebody else wrote the scribes and the Pharisees. John never talks about the scribes. But some, for some reason it does in this verse. Just a little idiosyncratic 
pointing out some things that clues to people that maybe this was different. Um, and this is in that bracketed area. This is all in the bracketed area. Everything we just read is all in the bracketed area. Now, uh, notice that there, there is a big flaw here with the, what the Pharisees do. The Pharisees bring a woman caught in the act of adultery. Well, let's think that through for a minute. How do you catch a person in the act of adultery? Unless you're somewhere you shouldn't be. <laughs> Spying, looking, doing things you shouldn't be doing. I mean, yes, she shouldn't be in a, an adulterous relationship, but it's usually done in private. Okay? Peeping Tom. <laughs> so, so first of all, this feels very contrived. This, is very, this feels like a setup. Okay? This feels like some hard-hearted people who say, aha, I know how we can get this guy. Yeah. It sounds like gossip, yeah. So, so they, they, they want Jesus and they want him bad. They want to nail him. They want him, they want him arrested. They want him stopped. And they think, wow, we got a way to do it. You know this lady over here? She's always having affairs, we think. Let's go spy on her. I bet if we catch her, we got him. Because let's just see. Because here's what Jesus, Jesus is going to react one of two ways. This is what they're thinking. Okay, this is pure conjecture. Okay, this is, this is how you, this is just a preacher trying to fill in the story a little bit here. But, but they're probably thinking Jesus is going to respond in one of two ways. What are his two ways to respond to them when they bring this adulterous woman to him? What are the two ways you think he might respond? Or that you think they thought he might respond? Okay, he might respond by agreeing with the law, and the law says stoner. But he might also respond how else they're thinking. Disagree. Huh? Disagree. And what? What would that be to disagree with him? What would it be? We can't do that to her. And why? Because we're all sinners. That's right. Because Jesus has been preaching a message of mercy. Ever since he got here, Jesus has been preaching a message of mercy. Jesus has been forgiving people, healing them, <laughs> healing them of their afflictions, forgiving their sins. Yes, they're testing him. Absolutely, they're testing him. And they think they've got him. They say, if he says to her, oh, it's okay, I forgive you, go and sin no more, which is sort of what he does at the end here, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, then they're going to, they're going to say, teacher, you do not uphold the law. They have got him on a breaking of the technicality of the law. Remember, they tried to do that with the healing on the Sabbath, and he said, hey, it's really not against the law to help people on the Sabbath. Okay, so... If he responds with, with if he responds with the law and says, "Okay, you're right, stoner," then they're going to say, "But aren't you supposed to be merciful? You don't even have mercy." And they're going to expose him for the fraud they think he is. He can't win. He cannot give them an answer that they think they think he cannot give them an answer. Let me rephrase that. They think that he cannot give them an answer that will be satisfactory. So they think they've got him. No. It's, have you ever heard the phrase catch 22? <laughs> this is a catch 22. With 20. his finger on the ground, I'm thinking that he's sitting there writing uh, Lazarus. I, I, caught, I know about their, your little deal that you did here a while back with a gal. And, and uh, uh, John, you're over here. Yeah. And I, wrote, I know when you did this and this and this. He's writing out these things to him as they're as he's like sitting there. A it's an what? interesting. It's an interesting thing. What did Jesus write on the ground exactly. with his finger? We don't know. No, but I've got a pretty good idea. That's probably what it was. 
We just don't know, do we? I've always thought he made him what back he then. Said. Huh? I've always thought he wrote what he said. Maybe. Maybe he did. We don't know. What if he wrote? What if he wrote? What if he started writing? Thou shalt have no other God. Oh, yeah, that me. would be good enough. And what if he then wrote, Thou shalt not make unto thy God any great gift? <laughs> and what if he got down and, and they're just yelling, and then they get to, then if he gets to, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And, and they're thinking all the time, you know, you know the, the, this is the, remember Jesus, there's a parallel, a lot of scholars find a parallel here between God in the burning bush and the, in the time with Moses and God, the finger of God writing the Ten Commandments. And this is the finger of the very same God. Exactly writing on the ground, maybe those commandments again. Or, maybe their sins, like you said. Who knows what he wrote? But whatever he wrote, but it, I'm sure it had meaning. <laughs> he stands up and he says to them, and he writes it twice. He, he writes for a while, then he stands up and talks. And he says, let him who's without the first... I, mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what he wrote. But if he, let's say he wrote the Ten Commandments. or there's a, They're all looking at that going, well, yeah. And then he says, if you're without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. That's as much as saying, okay, there's the law, but aren't we all guilty of the law? Aren't we all guilty of breaking the law? So now there's a flaw in their, there's a flaw in their plan here, a big flaw. I'm wondering if any of you catch it. There's a huge flaw in their plan here in this case of adultery. What does the law say about adultery? So we go back and read it? Let's go back and read it. Leviticus chapter 20. Let's just go back and read it. What does the law say about adultery? The book of Leviticus, of course, is if y'all want to, I'll put a little plug in for my college Sunday school class. We're going to be looking at the book of Leviticus this Sunday. Uh, if y'all want to come, you know, uh, you feel funny coming to a college class. I know I'm just joking with you. But what I'm, what I'm telling you is there is a, uh, there's a little, uh, there's a little, in the college class, we're using this thing called the Bible Project. It's called thebibleproject.com. And what it is is a series of videos, these couple of young guys that have been making these videos that tell the story of the Bible. And you ought to spend some time there, thebibleproject.com. They're little five to seven minute videos, and they'll tell the whole story of the book, each book of the Bible. And they, they're, they're animated. You know, this computer draws it as he's talking and telling the story. It's really cool stuff. Uh, you learn a lot from them, too. But we're actually doing Leviticus this what week. Chapter? Okay, Leviticus. chapter 20. Chapter 20. Here's what it says in verse 10. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. What's the flaw in their plan? What's their flaw? They didn't, bring the man. they didn't bring the man. They didn't bring the man, did they? They, they well, you, know, you know, I heard that. That's the truth. The man always gets away, doesn't he? Even in even in modern day law, you know, prostitution is illegal in all but the state of Nevada, I think. I don't know, but uh, in in prostitution, they always arrest the woman and rarely arrest the man. There are some. There are some cities that uh, actually will arrest the man if they for soliciting. Yeah, but, but do you see what I'm doing here? Yes. I, I'm saying yes. there has been a, a wrongfulness and a wrong understanding and a wrong attitude about this sin of adultery. 
It's a sin for both people. The man and the woman. doesn't yeah. matter who initiates it. It's a sin right. for both people. Why didn't they bring the man? Why did they just arrest the woman? Why is that? It shows perhaps they wanted to protect who the man was. It shows that men had the, men had the position of power and authority in the culture. It was a male-driven society. So they overlooked the sin of the man. But here is the Lord of life, Jesus Christ, God himself with the finger of God writing on there. Maybe he wrote, maybe he just wrote, what did you do with the man? <laughs> exactly. I don't know what he wrote. Could have been one of those Pharisees that was standing right there with the man being the guy. Could have been, you know. I, I mean, we can, we can have a little fun with what did he write, but the, whatever he wrote, it was extremely convicting. That's for sure. Because they all knew one way or they were sinners, and their plan had failed. And they began to walk away. And it says with the eldest first. I think that's an interesting yeah. point. Why does it say with the eldest first? Maybe because the eldest one sinned the longest on earth and was more, more prevalent and knew their sin. But I think it's very important then that we understand you can't, you can't trick God. You know? You can't test God in some trickery and way that you think you can trap him. And here they are trying to do this very thing, and they walk away defeated. But the woman walks away restored. Verse 11, Jesus says to her, where have they all gone? Is there no one left to condemn you? And she says what? Now, what do you think? What do you find interesting about her response? No one, Lord. Three little words. No one, Lord. What is interesting about that? Do you realize that she's condemning herself? She's not saying, "Well, yeah, I didn't do it." She's not trying to put up a defense. She's as, in as much as admitting she knows she's she's no one's condemning me. That's saying I'm not saying I'm innocent here before God. She's not trying to put up a defense. That's what people do when they're caught usually. Try to explain their situation. Put up. She doesn't do that. She condemns herself and says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Let's take those words right there. Neither do I condemn you. This is so important that we understand that God does not condemn us for our sin. I'm not trying to be soft on sin, and Jesus is not trying to be soft on sin. But neither does he condemn us. He forgives us if we repent. I believe the woman was repentant. That's why she condemned herself. She didn't say, she didn't try to offer any explanation of why she did it. But you don't know what my life's been like and you don't know how hard it's been and you don't know. She didn't offer just no one, Lord. He knew she was repentant. And so he forgives her. And that is true of every sin and every sinner. We have a God who loves us a God who is a God of mercy and a God who forgives if we repent. Amen. And what does repent mean? The Greek word repent to repent is metonia. And it means to literally turn around and go a different direction with your life. It doesn't mean just stop doing that for a while. It doesn't mean to just try and do better. It means turn around, go the other way. And that's exactly what he tells her. Do not sin again. Now, 
I think that we need to circle that phrase and think about it for a little bit. The same writer of the gospel also wrote the first epistle, 1 John, the epistle of 1 John. And if you remember what the same uh, beloved apostle wrote in 1 John, we've studied that book before in here, but I'm going to turn to it real quick because I want to give this to you in the right words. In 1 John... Chapter 2 says, well, let's just start chapter 1. Verse 8 says, if we say that we have no sin, then we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. We're liars. Okay? She didn't say she had no sin. She didn't say she had done nothing wrong. I'm in the book of 1 John now, a companion book written by the same man. So you've got to go all the way to the back of the Bible just before Revelation. A little tiny book called 1 John. It's on page 1274. <laughs> I always love to do that. Sorry. Sometimes I'm a bit of a smart aleck. Um, First uh, John chapter one, verse eight. It says, "If we say that we have no sin, then we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us." In other words, we're liars. And and she didn't say that. She she knew she'd sinned. And he says, "If we confess our sins." He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What verses are you reading in 1 John? 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 is what I just read. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And you notice it says, He is faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, If we say that we have not sinned, then we make him a liar. We make Jesus a liar because the Bible tells us in Scripture, in Jesus' very own words, you know, to the apostle, he tells all have sinned. Um, And his word is not in us. Chapter 2, verse 1 is where I was headed. I just wanted to give you the background. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But, (laughs) or it says, and if anyone sins, we do have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. I bring, I bring that up because in the John chapter 8, verse 11, Jesus tells her to go and sin no more. In First John, the same writer who has walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and lived the longest on earth, is writing his, his words to the to people in Scripture, says, he says right there in chapter 2, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And I want to ask you one question. Is it possible for you and I to go and sin no more? It's hard. Yes, you're absolutely right. But it's possible. And here's what I want you to hear. If there's any inkling of hope for you and I to live a life above sin, then we need to strive for it. That's what the holiness movement is about. That's why the Church of the Nazarene exists. That's why that's what we came into being for, to teach scriptural holiness, to strive not to sin. And it's hard, Jackie, you're right, it's hard. And and we should not condemn ourselves when we do fall. We should confess our sins and repent. 
And in fact, so much so, this is a dangerous doctrine, a dangerous doctrine, this doctrine of holiness. Because some people will latch onto it and they will begin to say, well, I'm, I've learned the secret. I don't sin anymore. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't sin. I've been sanctified and now I don't sin anymore. Well, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work that way. That's not what we meant. That's not what John Wesley meant. By the grace of God, it is possible to so be filled with the Holy Spirit, to so walk in the glory of the light of Christ that we may not sin. But it's hard. As Jackie said, it's hard. Why is it hard? Because we are fallible, temptable, weak human beings. But there's hope. There's hope. And that hope comes in many forms. It comes in the indwelling spirit of God. And that's what sanctification is, is to be filled with his spirit so that we are not trying to beat sin in our own power. Okay? But we are, it comes in the form of the hope of his holy scriptures that feed us. It comes in the hope of the sacraments of the church and that feed us. It comes in the hope of the fellowship or the communion of the saints that we're sitting in this room with the communion. We, to, to encourage one another, to build one another, there's much hope for us. But we still need to live a confessional lifestyle. We must live a confessional lifestyle. I must get up every day and tell the Lord, I am sorry for all the ways I fail you. Because I do. And so do you. We all do. I want to fail him less. Yes. Okay? And, and, and even my little sins are failures. Every sin is a sin. At some level, sin is all sin. You know, there are big sins and little sins. I, I, I agree with that in some level, but they're also, they're all sin. I'm not perfect. I'm not God. But I can have a perfect heart and I can want to try and serve him. And I can want to try and grow in his grace so that I, so that I don't sin. Okay? So I don't believe, here's what you have to answer that question. Would Jesus tell that woman to go and do something that he would not give her the power to do? Absolutely no. Because if he would, then he's mean. It's a mean God. And that's not God. God is love. So, you see, this sheds a whole lot of light. This story is so important in the Bible. So important. <clears throat> Some would say that the sin of adultery is probably one of the most uh, important sins, and that's why they put this in here, is because it, it, it is the sin that violates ourself so much. It violates the union of God and man or God and woman in our spirit when we align ourselves with someone else in adultery or sexually. That's the problem with that sin. It violates who we are. In that same book, uh, John, John says here in the first John, if I can turn to it, you never know if I can turn to things quickly sometimes, but he says, uh, and it may not, maybe, maybe I'm confused, it may not be John, maybe it's Paul. Somebody says, or I think it may be Paul now, that says that the man who sins sexually sins against himself. That means man or woman, of course. Okay, Why? Because we violate that holy, beautiful union that God brings to our flesh, whether we're single or married. And so I think this story is really important. I, I wanted to end this morning with this thought on holiness. 
Because God, there's hope to live holy lives. But what does a holy life look like? Here's what it's going to look like, okay? Here's what the holy life looks like. The holier you get, the more sinful you feel. I agree. The, uh, write that down, guys. The holier you get, the more sinful you feel. I agree with that 100%. Because you're, because you're growing closer to God and the closer you get to the infinite perfect being of all creation, you realize how less you are. That's right. By his glory, he does not condemn us though. So don't feel condemned. Here's a real message from John 8. Don't feel condemned. Jesus doesn't condemn you. He loves you and he forgives you if you repent. Say that again. The more holier you get, what? The more holier you get, or the more holy you get, I guess if we use the word more, we have to say holy. If I left the word more out, it'd be holier. See, I did learn something in English class, <laughs> even though I don't talk it very often. So the more holy we get, or the holier we get, the more sinful we feel. That is so true. You can, you, can, you can find it in all the lives of the great saints of the ages. Some of the holiest people that ever walked the earth felt incredibly unholy. Is that unholy. every time you feel like you get closer to God, it feels like Satan keeps <laughs> Absolutely. That's why he's called the adversary, the accuser. He's trying to pull you down and tell you you aren't, you aren't holy. You aren't. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. And it is a real battle in this world because there really is a Satan. There really are forces of evil. What? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind I say the Lord rebuke you. Because I don't have the power to rebuke Satan. I'm not one of those that thinks I have the power. I don't want to fight the devil on my terms. I want to use the Lord to rebuke you. The Lord get behind me. But neither do we also don't want to be one of those that does a cop out. You know, at least the woman didn't say, hey, the devil made me do it. She didn't say that. She she knew she had nothing to stand on here. Well, it's 12.03. I'm late. Uh, I'm going to try and keep you down under that noon hour since you all were gracious to move an hour for me. Uh, this is a real important study, and that's why I wanted to spend a lot. I wanted you to get a feel for how the Bible is translated, where it comes from, why we have so many different scriptures. But I want you to have such confidence in your Bibles, too. It's very interesting. Yes, definitely. Well, thank you for your time. Let's, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of mercy, the gift of love, the gift of forgiveness. Thank you that you do not condemn us, but rather you love us and come to us and forgive us and strengthen us with your spirit when we repent. And so, Father, help us by your grace to live repentant lives from now until you call us home to live repentant lives. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on us, for we are sinners. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.